Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The Economist. In London, this is The Economist, and you're listening to Babbage, a weekly conversation on science and technology. I'm Miranda Johnson, the environment correspondent, and joining me in our studio are Jason Palmer and Tim Cross, our science correspondents. In this episode, we'll talk about how fusion energy is exciting once more and why one star in our galaxy is perplexing astronomers and giving hope to alien hunters. So, Jason, just to talk a little bit about uh, fusion, could you start by reminding us what this is for those of us slightly scratching our heads currently? Well, uh, fusion energy is just a variant of nuclear energy. We have that already, the the splitting the atom kind, the fission kind. The fusion kind is where you whack the atoms together. In both cases, you get some, some energy out. Cracked the fission energy problem turned out to be not too difficult, but fusion energy has always seemed mm-hmm. uh, trickier, right? Of course, there's the old joke that says fusion energy is always just 30 years away. Yeah, no matter when you ask. And unfortunately, that's what the history of this stuff looks like. And there have been some absolutely enormous facilities built around the world um, that have not given, you know, a whole lot of hope, right? There's one called NIF in the States. There's two ways to go about this, either using uh, magnets or using a big thwack of some kind. And the preferred thwack is with giant lasers, right? So there's this huge facility in California called NIF. The idea was to build this big thing, football pitch-sized building with lasers in it to do that. That was built absolutely to spec. It was supposed to get its sort of first plasmas out, its first fusion break-even out years ago. Hasn't happened. Mm-hmm. It's looking less mm-hmm. and less like they ever will. And under construction now, you know, yet, yet to be tested, is this enormous thing called ITER in, in France, which um, is... I was going to say, how, how is the design of that different? Well, this is the, the magnetic kind. This is the, the mm-hmm. corresponding big flagship project of the magnetic version. And it uses what's called a tokamak, which is basically just a giant donut-shaped magnetic chamber. Mm-hmm. So the, the takeaway from all this is that the two ways we think of getting fusion at the moment, you're looking at either magnetic donuts or giant lasers? Yes, exactly that. Magnetic donuts or giant lasers, one of the two will get you to a situation where you push together atomic nuclei hard enough that they, they fuse together and release some neutrons. You mm-hmm. can harvest the, the energy from these neutrons and you know run your steam turbine or whatever. But again, it remains distant currently. But doing this either way, lasers or magnets, it's not cheap and the ITER facility over schedule and costs billions? Tens of billions. Um, and you know, and has been kind of widely derided for being a, you know, the exactly the wrong way to run a project. Mm-hmm. But tokamaks are not the only way to do this. What I've been looking into is a different facility altogether, a little bit smaller, but still pretty big, um, called Vendelstein 7X. And this is a different design that altogether. That is a cool sci-fi name. Right. So magnetic donuts, um, giant lasers, and, and Vendelstein, Vendelstein 7X. <laughs> <laughs> So this thing is called a Stellarator, and which is, you know, the, the names abound, right? Stellarator. Vendelstein 7X Stellarator. Comma Stellarator. <laughs> okay. <laughs> At large. 
Um, the Stellarator design was actually what uh, the Americans were working on at the time that the Russians invented the tokamak. Mm-hmm. And so you can imagine sort of height of Cold War. The Russians come out and say, we've invented this device, which is way better than your Stellarator thing. And the Americans didn't believe it. So turns out people best suited to, to measure this in 1969, I think it was, uh, were a group of British scientists who went over just to check what the Russians were saying. And sure enough, tokamaks were massively better at squashing and keeping the plasma in place. So why were Russia and the US so interested in developing fusion? I mean, what's it used for? Well, it's uh, it's actually a much more attractive alternative to the fission kind because it creates a lot less radioactive waste, much lower level radioactive waste, huge, huge amounts of energy, easily obtained and abundant fuel can be sort of separated out of seawater. From a, from a nuclear energy perspective, it looks like a real win and, and it remains that way today. And I mean, is the Stellarator our only option or are there other other people working on this problem there there are there are tons actually what's what's most interesting is not the the big ones but the kind of the small ones mm-hmm. as all of this sort of disappointment disenchantment if you like with the really big things like NIF in California and and with uh, the way things have gone with with ITER in France that leaves an opportunity for uh, entrepreneurial types to say hey we can do this smaller faster better cheaper uh, and aren't the barriers to entry quite high with a, a fusion startup I imagine well they are and they aren't right a lot of these um, startups of which there are many more uh, in the last few years than there have been before seem to be sort of spinning out of, of academic groups, right? So a lot of the know-how is there. And there is this this temptation to believe that using that kind of academic knowledge, you can use some sort of physical shortcuts, some sort of better materials, clever or magnet shapes, whatever it is, to do these things fairly small. So if you have the small thing, comparatively cheap thing, mm-hmm. and you could conceivably solve all of the world's energy problems at a stroke, then you can easily attract the attention of investors. Yeah, exactly. I imagine it makes a good pitch, but um, are any of them actually having any success? Well, um, it depends. Many of them will, will tell you so. There are a couple of elements of the story that can kind of trick you here. One of them is that you can use your clever idea and get good early results, right? If we, you know, here's three points that all make a line. And if we continue up this line with a bit more funding and so on, then we, hey, we'll, we'll make a diffusion. Mm-hmm. And, and again, this sort of smaller, cheaper business is, is also attractive. So, so the answer you'd get from a lot of these companies is, yes, it's going very well. Thank you very much. Yeah. Um, but, you know, time will tell. And rather unfortunately, the, the old gag of a being sort of 30 years away – that at the moment, I don't think has, has radically changed. Yeah. I, I think even if Vendelstein 7X keeps showing off amazing results, it'll make its first plasma next month. Yeah. Things look very much on track for that. And even if that goes fantastically well, we might still be 30 years away. But it'd be nice to start counting down from 30. At last, yes. Um, thanks, Jason. Tim, moving on now to space. Hello, um, yes. There is an unusual star in our galaxy that is exciting both astronomers and the media possibly slightly too much. Well, yeah, the star is called KIC 8462852. You've possibly heard of it, or probably <laughs> yes. not. That well-known well, star. Put, put that on the, on the list of interesting names from <laughs> this, this episode. Anyway, it's, it's one of the um, many hundreds of thousands of stars that a space telescope that maybe you have heard of is looking at. So this is Kepler, mm-hmm. which is a planet-hunting telescope, and it's responsible for most of the stories that um, we've been seeing about exoplanets, planets that orbit stars other than the sun. And this one in particular has been attracting quite a lot of interest because it's behaving rather strangely. Mm -hmm. And talk me through it. I understand that the kind of initial disruptions to the light pattern that attracted astronomers into realising that this was an unusual star, there's also been some sort of citizen astronomy involved too. Yeah, so astronomy is one of those few sciences where, um, you know, these days even a a sort of amateur, a dilettante can make contributions. And one of the problems that the the Kepler team have, they're looking at hundreds of thousands of stars and they're staring at these things for, for years. 
years on end. And they're looking for little dips in the star's brightness. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you see those on a regular basis, it's a fair assumption there's a planet going around it. Um, there's obviously way too many to have people check them all by hand. So most of the work's done by computer algorithms. Yeah. But the computer algorithms don't do very well when something weird starts happening. They just sort of throw up their hands and go, help, we don't understand this. And there's a whole group of people out there, mm-hmm. united by the internet, who um, look at these sort of strange cases, eyeball the patterns and try to make sense of them. And this is exactly what's happened here. And w- what has been found? Well, so the way Kepler works, as we said, if, if you see a, a regular dip in brightness, and it, you know, it comes around every 100 days or 200 days or 300 days or whatever, you can be reasonably sure it's one object on a regular orbit. It's probably something like a planet. What they found here is lots of irregular dips in brightness of varying sizes um, with not much in the way of predictability. So the star's output is, is varying and that's quite hard to explain. As I understand it, that might be something you'd expect from newer stars, but this is in fact a mature star. Yeah, so the paper on the, on the star goes through a whole bunch of possible explanations. And one is that maybe this is a really young star because really young stars uh, tend to be surrounded by something called a protoplanetary disk, which is basically a big lump of dust and rock that is in the process of condensing into planets. They talk about other ones as well. Mm-hmm. So uh, they do all, all the sort of physical modelling. It might be that we're seeing the aftermath of a collision. Perhaps there's a sort of asteroid belt in the system that it's a, a sort of kind of... Uh, Enough of all these science explanations. I think it's aliens. Right. So this is where all the excitements come from. So in the paper, the word aliens doesn't appear anywhere. And they say, oh, maybe it's a swarm of comets that have been knocked in in some way. But a piece in The Atlantic, uh, which is a rival news magazine, which we probably shouldn't speak of, um, <laughs> they got in touch with one of the authors and said, well, what if this is something really out of left field? And alien hunters and have all these ideas about how you might look for evidence of intelligent aliens elsewhere. And one perennially popular one is to assume that these advanced aliens are building massive megastructures around their stars, things called Dyson spheres, which are basically gigantic solar panels. You put them in orbit around the star, you power your you know, high-tech alien civilization. We forget all this stellarator nonsense yeah, we were talking say, about we, earlier. We should forget fusion. Uh, yeah, I think we should go for Dyson spheres. And <laughs> so, Those would be cheap. Right? <laughs> I'm starting my, my Dyson sphere startup now. <laughs> it, it, it'll be 2,000 years away for the next 2,000 years. <laughs> Um, but anyway, if, when you look at it, okay, this is sort of compatible. It does seem to sort of stack up that if you assume super advanced aliens who are building solar panels of such an enormous scale in orbit around their star that the star is visibly dimming from hundreds of light years away, then yeah, you can kind of make the numbers work. The original article was reasonably, it was speculative and presented itself that way. And the way that often happens, everyone took this and ran with it. And suddenly everyone's going, oh, my God, there are aliens around this this planet. So I, I am quite taken with this idea that, that they might be uh, alien megastructures. Could you try and detect radio waves as well? This is the plan. And I mean, the, the original idea of how you would search for aliens going way back to the 60s is that you look for radio transmissions of the kind that Earth you know, gives off from you know, everything from like air traffic control radar, TV, all that kind of stuff. If you have a big enough telescope, maybe you can detect these at, at long range. So that's exactly what they're going to be trying to do with these other telescopes. So how should we think about this discovery in a, in a larger context? Well, so, I mean, it certainly is a discovery. I guess the question is a discovery of what? It, it's sort of hard to know. You know, there's this phrase about you should keep an open mind, but not so open that your brain falls out. And, you know, on the one hand, the universe, it's a big place. Um, We know from the other discoveries that Kepler has made that Earth-like planets, the ones that we think probably could support life, seem to be really common. Mm. So you can certainly defend the idea that there probably are aliens out there in the 
vastness of the universe somewhere. Um, whether we've discovered them on this particular star, I mean, it's at the moment it's at the stage of, oh, this is kind of interesting, we should take a closer look. It's probably not aliens, but it's definitely worth taking a second look and you know probing the star thoroughly to see what we can find. Absolutely. Tim Cross, thanks very much. And thanks also to our other guest, Jason Palmer. Well, that is all for this episode. You've been listening to Babbage. For more news on science and technology, go to economist.com. In London, this is The Economist. The Economist. Are you ready to enhance your future in tech? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that has more tech unicorns than France, Germany and Sweden combined. The nation that was third in the world to have a $1 trillion tech sector valuation. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.